0: Hey y'all, listen in as we finish up the top five quality management system failures of all time and we discuss the Ford Pinto. I couldn't believe what I learned. In today's global economy, quality matters. Benjamin Franklin once quip, Texas Quality Assurance, where quality management gets simplified. I'm Darcy. I'm Kyle. Um, We are doing our last episode of the top five quality management system failures of all time, according to Dominic (laughs) Trey Montana. And um, this one, I'm really—I don't want to say I'm excited about it because lots of—you just
1: said I'm excited about like five times. I know, but bad
0: things happen, so. so this is a quality management failure okay um yes. it's the ford pinto <laughs> what do you know about it
1: well it was made very very quickly um a rushed production line it was meant to be very small they were trying to compete with the lightweight small cheap vehicles coming in from overseas yes 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 uh, because ford had not yet adopted the quality management principles that toyota and nissan and all these others had and they had the gas tank horribly positioned, and the gas tank had really nothing in the way to protect it. so you get a little fender bender, boom, these dummies that were putting gasoline in plastic bags were safer than the pinto drivers.
0: um yes, to all of the above, so this blew my mind because wait,
1: wait, wait. by the way, if you put gasoline in a plastic bag, no apologies, that's stupid. <laughs>
0: So I started looking for information, articles on the Pinto, and I can't remember which one I came across the first. I think I came across this one from Mother Jones first, and they were really like laying in to Ford for their decisions. <laughs> and I was like, okay, that's that's one article, one person's opinion. Let me go see. So then I clicked on the next one. Um, I think this is from Business Ethics. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was pretty much the same information. So
1: they even discussed this in a book. I just I say read. I just finished listening to. It was a, um, a kind of a culmination of notes and thoughts from uh, Edward Deming. In any case, they spent like a whole chapter talking about how horrible uh, these design problems were and all the terrible stuff they ran into with the Pinto because they set their goal wrong.
0: Okay, so. so they um ford yes there was this threat of all these small compact cars being made across different countries and ford wanted to compete with that so in 1968 they decided to create the pinto it was known inside the company as lee's car lee iacocca had become the president he was a Fast rising star within Ford and I think created the Mustang. So he's going to be in charge of this as well. Um,
1: See, that's a whole other point there too. Fascinating. Ah, You're killing me.
0: So... He said that because all I did was hold up one finger to make him stop. (laughs) This
1: is where we need to record these things and put them out on YouTube. No. Everyone Um, give Darcy tons of pressure. Tell everyone how much you want to. Watch us while you listen. It
0: will not be as much fun. The Pinto was to weigh no more than 2,000 pounds and cost no more than $2,000. So... Kyle mentioned that they compressed the design and creation time. So normal drafting board to showroom time is about 43 months. One article said 43 months. One said three and a half years. Pretty close to the same. Uh, The Pinto was 25 months. So, What is that? Like 18 months? They cut off a year and a half of drafting time. So this meant that the Tooling had to be kind of created at the same time we're designing right. it. So if there's any design changes, yeah, too bad we're not recreating tooling because that's going to cost too much. At about the same time, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration was creating a new safety standard. And the standard required that by 1972 all new autos have to be able to withstand a rear end impact of 20 miles per hour without fuel loss. By 1973 it had to be an impact of 30 miles per hour. All of the Pinto prototypes failed the 20 mile an hour test. (laughs) In 1970 forged crash test the pinto itself and it was the same a ruptured gas tank and dangerous leaks uh the now, only then pin- they
1: try to rush the release of this before the safety standard became effective
0: that's what i'm gathering because it that, said that, that in 1968 is when they decided to build it and it said in r- order to have it ready in 1971 yeah and this says by 72 they right. all had it so i imagine that's the reason for the rush production to get it out
1: i won't lie there's something nice about grandfathering things in so you don't have to meet the regulations but that's only after the fact it's nice
0: <laughs> and if it works yeah right, right. um so the <laughs> only pentos that, that passed the test had been modified in some way for example, with a rubber bladder in the gas tank or a piece of steel between the tank and the bumper. So this, oh, I didn't realize that. So they had... The, the tank was between... The gas tank, the fuel tank, was between the solid live rear axle yeah. and the rear bumper. Yeah. That's where the tank was located. There were other, like, saddle-type tanks that rides over the back axle... And the funny thing about that is that Ford owned the patent for those saddle type Uh, tanks.
1: ah, ah. Well, let's think about this. What's going to be better? And
0: other car manufacturers were using their patent for the saddle tank at that time. Yeah. So they were getting paid for use of their patent and not using it. Why, you ask? Did they not use it? Well, because now we've already got the prototypes we have to retool. Right. So Ford created a fatalities report that estimated the cost of technical improvements Mm -hmm. versus the cost of rollovers, deaths, and damages.
1: Right, because that would have shifted the weight higher. Keeping
0: it. So they have this little um, chart here that says... If we don't fix it, the cost we'll have to pay out from injury, deaths, and vehicles mm-hmm. is $49.5 million. Okay. If we go back and redesign and fix it, it's going to cost us $137 million. Jeez. So they knew about the problem. Jeez. They knew how to fix the problem, but said it's going to cost us $80 million more if we fix it. So let's go ahead and release it and kill people. Jeez.
1: Now don't get me wrong, I understand that there is an inherent risk with anything. Every single vehicle ever manufactured has resulted in someone dying. There is a risk inherent with everything. But that's part of the whole thing about risk assessment is we don't just identify if a risk exists, We want to identify how severe is that risk and then what mitigations required. To get that risk to an acceptable threshold. Now, I start to sound really mean and cold when I say this, but there is actually an acceptable number of deaths. There is. If there wasn't an acceptable number of deaths, we'd all be living in a bubble in our living room with robots taking care of us. So there is an acceptable death. Again, I don't mean to sound harsh or cold, but y'all drove to work today. You accepted the risk yourself. Okay. Okay. But when you know that that risk is really stupidly high and that you could and should take measures to mitigate it that's not good
0: i i guess it's upsetting that they just ran the numbers and said we'd rather save our 80 million dollars or how about just not release the car
1: yeah yeah well this is something that a lot of automobile manufacturers have done in the last couple of decades is and it's kind of weird like we've got one parked out here in uh, our office what is what's it the, the car down there it's uh the really expensive stupid one what is it i have no I idea
0: what you're talking about alexis
1: no it's not alexis it's one of these other like a
0: mercedes bentley
1: yes the, yeah well i can't remember what it's now. any case and i'm looking at. It, i'm like what the heck is that doing here i mean these are a uh, automobile brand and they only make expensive high-end vehicles what's it doing here and i look at it and i'm like shh your Sequoia looks better than it does. <laughs> and so it's, it's kind of this mixing emerging of skills. It's like if you're good at making <clears throat> the cheap, low-cost vehicle, guess what you're good at making? The cheap, low-cost vehicle. So what can you do? You can improve how good you are at making the cheap, low-cost vehicle. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like be what you are. Be true to the product and the quality and the service and the customer you have. And when you start mixing these, which was part of so funny because, yes, this is the guy that helped design the Mustang, is that's not the world he lived in. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's a completely different mindset to jump into that world.
0: Which was probably another problem with this whole thing because I'm sure the Mustang brought them Buku's. Of money. Oh, yeah. And so they said, oh, he's great. He needs to be president. Right. But, I mean, I know we've talked about this on previous episodes. Just because you're good at changing the oil on the car or fixing the car does not mean you should be the president of right. the oil change company. Right. Because that entails managing your employees and dealing with well, customers and those kinds of that's things. the same
1: problem. And I won't go too far down the rabbit hole. But the same problem Apple made when, um, you know, after they... Uh, before they ousted Steve Jobs is, you know, they bring in someone who's the CEO of Pepsi to be the CEO of a computer company. Like, yeah, understand skills transfer, <clears throat> but we got to be true to what we do and what we know and what our competencies are and, and what our organizational knowledge supports. Funny, all these things are included in this ISO standard. <laughs> hmm, that's odd. Well,
0: I have a few other just one other little thing from the everything that I read so far was mostly from the business ethics I told you. This Mother Jones is article is very detailed and in depth if you want sure to way. read through. I didn't read most of it because it is like they're really laying <laughs> it on. Um but This is in reference to Lee Iacocca, since we were talking about him. It says, when it was discovered the gas tank was unsafe, did anyone go to Iacocca and tell him? Hell no, replied an engineer who worked on the Pinto. (laughs) Um, He wanted to remain anonymous. (laughs) (laughs) And he said, that person would have been fired. Safety wasn't a popular subject around Ford in those days. With Lee, it was taboo. Whenever a problem was raised that meant a delay on the Pinto, Lee would chomp on his cigar, look out the window, and say, read the product objectives and get back to work.
1: Again, I say so goal setting. The,
0: the product ag- objectives were in a top secret manual called the Pinto Green Book. And it has the kind of a, a table of contents that just okay. summarizes the objectives. I guess it's not really top secret anymore. <laughs> um and these are the objectives: size, weight, initial price, fuel consumption, reliability, serviceability, appearance, comfort, features, ride and handling, and performance. No safety.
1: Well, I mean, look, people are going to live up to the measures you put in front of them i mean this is just a common topic these days anyways and kind of management and sales philosophy anyhow it's like if you tell your salesperson your goal is to make 50 phone calls a day they're gonna make 50 phone calls a day and then you go out and well, why aren't we making any sales well i made my dolls. Mm-hmm. like people are gonna live up to what you put in front of them there's nothing wrong with the carrot and stick mentality um can't be your only only tool in <laughs> your toolbox but there's nothing wrong with the carrot and stick mentality but uh, they're going to chase whatever carrot you put in front of them.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, you're going to get what you ask for.
0: Well, and well, yeah, all these people were just doing what he said. And, and it sounds like, according to this one engineer, and whether or not right. that's true or not, it sounds like there were people concerned. But, you know, they're also concerned about providing for their family and keeping a job. Yeah. Um, and this says, uh, where did I? Oh, as Lee Iacocca was fond of saying... Safety doesn't sell.
1: Uh, look, you know, coming from someone designing sports cars in the 70s, 60s, 70s, like, I, I get it. Man, those things look awesome. They run great. Like, wonderful. Cool. Yeah, when I, if I want to go get a sports car, I'm going to be thinking, now, how safe is this going to be if I crash it when I'm going 120 miles an hour down an old gravel road? I'm not going to think that. But uh, when you're making an economy vehicle for people to drive to and right. from work,
0: it's different. Right, and I think the thing that kills me is that they knew. Yeah. And they ran the numbers. Yeah. And said we would rather have the 80 million than worry about these people that were going to die. And and that they owned the patent to a safer fuel tank that other cars at that time were using. Yeah. And they refused to even use it.
1: Now, I remember reading somewhere before that part of the reason for that is that it would have shifted the weight in the vehicle and the positioning of some of the things, and it would have increased the overall cost of each vehicle. It would have the size. It would have increased the weight. And, yeah, like you said, they would have had to gone back to the board. And they ran
0: the the numbers, and it was going to cost more to do that than to pay out in lawsuits. And I guess the reason that that blows my mind is, like, how many other things are companies doing that and running the numbers that we don't know about? Yeah.
1: Well, we had a, uh, um, oh, Mark Coldiron, when he was on the podcast, he, he talked about there's a certain number of acceptable, uh, there's an acceptable amount of, uh, like, rat feces that you can have in your food, right? <laughs> well, it's true, but there is an acceptable minimal number. Um, but yeah, this is beyond anything acceptable.
0: Well, at the end of the the business ethics, it references General Motors, and how they were sued in 1993 over something simpler, similar, <laughs> knowing that they had side-saddle gas tanks that were going to cause injury. And, of course, they fought it, saying that the driver was drunk or you right. know something, that it was his fault. But in the end, a former GM safety engineer switched sides and testified and said... They they knew about it. Yeah. So, I mean, that's in the 90s. Yeah. That they General Motors knew about it. So it it just makes I mean, not even in cars, like you said, in food, there's a certain number amount of rat feces. That's okay. There's a certain number of whatever that's okay. Like, well, and you run into a problem with
1: especially when you you have these slogans, something Deming talked about a lot in his uh, uh, book out in the crisis, which is going to get reviewed soon. Um, on our Business Visionaries Book Club, in case, one of his 14 points, he talks about uh, sloganeering and how terrible slogans are, um, and which I find funny because you go into any workplace, whether it's, say, zero defects, zero accidents. And his argument is that these slogans, that these objectives without the clear how we're going to do it and the vision and the philosophy and the culture behind it actually make the problem you're trying to solve worse.
0: Yeah, because then people aren't going to report anything mm-hmm. because – yeah.
1: And yeah, it's just, it, it, it's it's so incredibly interesting how much impact the goals you set have. You know, when we do our uh, training, especially like part of our fractional quality management, you know, we do like a four hours a month of trainings. And I talk about process maps all the freaking time. And one of the first parts of the process map is identifying goals. And I get this uh, feedback almost every time from someone because we take a look at the goals and we take a look at the outputs of the process and they're really, really, really similar to each other. And so inevitably, someone will ask, well, why do you do both? You're just writing the same thing down twice. Hmm. I'm like, because your goal will dictate the outputs you want and inform you of bad outputs.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Like, well, I just want to write it down once. I don't want to have to do it twice. No, 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 no. you want to do this one twice.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well... I'm disappointed that you knew everything about the Pinto already. You kind of stole my thunder on that one. But I hope that some of our listeners <laughs> are as, uh, you know, amazed, surprised, disgusted, you yeah. know, whatever emotion that you might be feeling about this as I was. Yeah, it it's was a little bit of everything. It was a surprise <laughs> to me. I mean, I think I knew that there were lots of well, crashes or whatever. Pintos, yeah, but
1: we didn't. Yeah, it was like. <sighs> There were so many things that could have been done. From you know, a uh, a bladder in the gas tank. Yeah, like, I mean, they just, talked about that, and they could have put just a simple. In, in some of the recalls, they found there was just a little simple, cheap, cheap, cheap plastic piece they could have put in there. Mm-hmm. Like for next to nothing, they could have prevented most of this. Just little cheap plastic pieces in there to to buffer against.
0: But it. But that requires retooling things. Yeah, because you have to go
1: through the reverification, the revalidation, and update your drawings, and your specs, and your everything, and it takes manpower and it's expensive
0: Yep. Yeah. so that was a good one to be on the list cool thank you
1: hey this is Kyle with Texas Quality Assurance here for the Quality Matters podcast you know one of the number one services that we provide for folks are what they call second-party internal audits you know the fact is it is so difficult to maintain objectivity to schedule the time train the resources and and manage the process for your internal audits so why not outsource it to experts who are used to doing this handle it on a regular basis and can provide you with the compliance support you need to keep uh, working and do work that matters